I, those those antique cookies that were just mentioned, they kind of sound like fruitcake. It sounds like you can really keep them for a long time, right? Yes, but they're not antique. They are freshly baked. <laughs> okay. Oh, but aren't they worth more? Like a, like a hundred-year-old cookie would be quite a... Okay, never, never mind. And good... Uh, welcome, my name is Scott Warner, and I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. We're capping our 25th year uh, with Kathy Lambrecht, who is vice president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago and has been a member of our organization for 23 years. And one of the reasons we've made it to 25 years is because of Kathy. Uh, when Kathy first showed up in 1995 and wanted to help, um, and there really wasn't much for her to do then. We were having our book sales. We'd get in people from uh, the books, different bookstores, and they would sell the books, except they'd keep all the profits. And Kathy said, I'll let me do that, and I'll handle and raise funds. And I, I thought, well, okay, but uh, it's, it's so much work to do that. I tried it once, and I thought, I'll never do that again. And she schleps the books from her home in Highland Park. And anyway, and she started helping uh, make the food for the events. She found volunteers like Deb Silberstein to help make the food and Barbara Cook. And, uh, and well, anyway, I could go on and on. And anyway, Kathy's the glue that holds our organization together. And uh, also she sends out the email notices and handles the website. It goes on and on and on. And... Uh, um, and she's also active in other areas of Chicago's food scene. Kathy runs our sister organization, Chicago Foodways Roundtable, and also has the Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance on the food and culture of the American Midwest. In addition, she's a program director with the Highland Park Historical Society and Illinois Mycological Association. That sounds like something that does cold cream, Michael. No, I know it's... It's uh, Mushroom Club. Yeah. That's what it's called at our house. She says she's a fun guy, so... Fungal. Uh, fungal. Fungal. <laughs> we know all those jokes. And I could go on and on about her, but Kathy had a special request for me regarding her introduction. She said, please keep it brief. So that's the long and short of it. And Kathy wants to get right to talking about a subject that's near and dear her, to her. So Kathy, if you'll let me get by, I'll get out. I'm and you can... I'm standing oh, no, no, I was just being funny. You know, I just want to get out, get out as soon as I can so you can come right here. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I was going to say, come on down, but you're not. You're already up. I'm up. Okay. I'm up. Thank you, Scott. I succeeded. I didn't think that was really going to happen. And when he said I had a special request, I'm like, what the heck did I say? <laughs> what is he going to come up with? Our program today is related to a book that we've been putting together since August on state fair recipes. But I kind of like to begin at the beginning, so I will. Um, but not the very beginning, not going back to my, well, okay, I'll bring it up. Stephanie read the introduction to the book already. And kind of ground zero for me on my food interests goes back to my grandmother. I was used to where at my household where there was the company meal and then there was the everyday meal. Every day was kind of okay, sort of the same thing repeated over and over. 
in my opinion, mother's laughing, but it was my, re- my reaction to her food. So at one point, I, had, I lived with my grandmother for about four or five months, and I was kind of interested to see what her everyday food was like. And I found out it was pretty damn good. And when I went home, back living with my parents again, I was not quite tickled pink with the food offered in my home. (laughs) And that's kind of when I started learning how to cook. Now, some years later, um, I got to be a reasonably accomplished cook. uh, But I had a friend who used to make quilts by hand. And she submitted them to the Lake County Fair. And she asked me to come and take a look at it. Well, I don't do quilts, but it was interesting to look at. And I went there, and I looked at her quilts. They were magnificent, but I'm not a sewer. But then I went over to the food department, and I looked at the pies, and I looked at the jams, and I went, oh, I can do better than that. And I did, because over the next few years, oh, and of course, by the way, I like that movie, Our State Fair. I really like that one where they make the mincemeat and get all drunk and all that good stuff. Um, But at the Lake County Fair, the first year I probably got like a, I don't know, I I did okay. But the second year I got a uh, champion ribbon. And the following year I got champion and best of show, which is not too shabby. And I have to say after that I kind of stopped going there because like where do you go when you've gotten champion and best of show? You know, and it's sometimes, you know, things don't happen as often as you'd like. Um, then I went on to the state fair, and I got a number of ribbons. Some of them were for, uh, like this one, champion ribbon, I gained for making Swedish lipa bread. I have never made it before that contest. I have never made it since that contest. And, and, the, and we, were, we had a, Swedish, a gentleman of Swedish descent working for us at the time, he was completely disgusted that I got a championship ribbon for something that he knew people who crafted and worked hard on this for, the, for some years. Um, but then I became involved with, uh, with 4-H via being a master gardener and a master food preserver. So they would assign me to do things like go and judge the food contests because they knew I was really more food-oriented than plant-oriented, and they were right, right, right. And, but I learned a lot about judging competitions. Um, I also started going down, like I said, at the state fair. And at the state fair, they would ask me, oh, you're from Chicago. They couldn't believe that somebody from Chicago was coming down to the state fair to compete. And they go, do you know anybody who might want to sponsor a contest? Flash forward a few years later, I'm involved with Greater Midwest. We're looking for a project to do. And I said, well, why don't we do a fair contest? You would have thought I was a genius when I brought it up. The thing was, I was already part of that system. I knew how it worked. So I knew who to call. And so Illinois in 2009 was our beta, our place to test it out to see if it would really work. And it reasonably did. Um, But over the years, we've been doing this with Illinois since 2009. So this year was like our 10th year of physically being at the fair. And we collect anywhere from five to 10 recipes a year. Um, But this is not just the Illinois State Fair. We've been at the Indiana State Fair. We've been at the Wisconsin State Fair. 
Minnesota State Fair, and the biggest participant level happens to be where there's a major metropolis. So Indiana State Fair has a reasonably vigorous competition, so does the uh, Minnesota State Fair. Illinois is a little bit quieter, but that's okay. That's, but I know a number of people there. We won't, won't ever give that one up. But I had had it drilled into me early on that we needed to maybe do a cookbook. And at that time, we had somebody on the board who was a test kitchen person. And she says, well, you know, if you're going to do this, you have to test the recipes, and you're going to have to rewrite them. And then we had somebody else who had sort of a journalistic background. And they're like, well, the stories don't have quite enough information. We can interview and add stuff to it. So the idea of doing, and then, of course, you know, we'll have to edit, and some recipes will end up on the cutting room floor. And I had a problem with that, and it was overwhelming to me as well. And then this last year, um, we had the Illinois Bicentennial. Now, that doesn't, that's not a life-changing moment for me. However, I, with the history community in Lake County, we did this little book called 200 Objects That Made History in Lake and McHenry Counties. It was a self-published book. It had 200 objects from all the little museums in Lake and McHenry County. It looked reasonably good, and I talked to the girl, and it seemed reasonably achievable to try to do something like this, but I hadn't quite put it all together. In fact, uh, Barbara Cook, I guess she's back there making polenta, early in the year thought Greater Midwest Foodway should do some kind of uh, uh, project with, related to the bicentennial. And she had her ideas of what to do, and I was perfectly happy to let her do what she wanted. Um, but I didn't think about doing this cookbook. Um, perhaps in August, we were driving back, I think probably from the Missouri State Fair, and I started thinking about this whole cookbook business. And it occurred to me, maybe we don't quite have to have the stylized photos, the edited stories, and the, you know, the properly tested recipes. I've been going to cookbook club now, one form or another, since for the last, like, five, six, seven years. And one of the books that we did one time was from Nigella Lawson. The pictures were not studio pictures. They looked like she made them in her kitchen. She took a cut out of the cake. There were crumbs all over the place. The frosting wasn't even. I was like, damn. That's terrific stuff. <laughs> because it's suddenly, because one of the things, so by the way, we did apply back in May. I, part of the process is to get a local politician to sign off on your application. So uh, since I'm involved with the Highland Park Historical Society and the president is the husband of the mayor of Highland Park, I figured the mayor of Highland Park would gladly sign off on my application. I think if, if I didn't have all that, I think they would have signed off anyway. But we did apply, and we did get approval for our project. Now, the day I put in the application was the day I finally decided this was going to happen, and that was around May 26th. I'm sorry, August 26th. Do you know what August 26th is? means nothing to me, but when I called a month later to find out what happened to my application, she goes, why? That's Illinois Constitution Day. 
remember that for the future. If you send something to the state agency on August 26th, it might get ignored because it was Illinois Constitution Day. I found our, I found our project on their website. I have yet to receive any email officially telling me that our project, but it's on the website. If it's on the website, that's as good as, as I really want it. And there's our little project. I'm slightly embarrassed. The picture of the food there, you can tell we took some healthy samples out of that particular dish. <laughs> You'll see it a little bit later when it's more complete. But at that moment, <laughs> we thought it was pretty yummy. And you're gonna sample some later. It's a polenta with meat sauce. Um, so I was really pleased to be included in the bicentennial, even if they never did send me the official letter. Being on the website is about as good as it gets. But normally when we walk into state fairs, this is kind of what we walk into. This is the back area at the Illinois State Fair. This is from 2012, and here's a number of displays. I think the, 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 the pie in front with the cut out of it, it might be a carrot souffle. There's some mint drink, the uh, chess uh, cheese pie. Oh, and there's some applesauce too. I don't remember what that other item is. But this is what we walk into. And we sit down, and I take my digital recorder, and I start reading the stories that are presented to us to the other judges. Because it has to be read at some point, so why not read it aloud? And at the same time, I record it, so someday if I get around to it, it'll be edited and become a podcast. Somebody might want to listen to these stories while driving down the expressway. I can only hope. But with the State Fair, just so you know, this contest is weighted 50% the history, 40% the food preparation and how it tastes, and 10% is sort of the beauty contest. So people are often bringing props, which is terrific because you get to see a lot about their lives. Sometimes it comes straight out of a, a Tupperware container, but you know, once they see what it's like, then the next year they don't come with a Tupperware container. This is one dish that was submitted in 2015. He got first prize. I'm gonna read you the story. And now just think about it. You're listening to it cold. You don't know what's going to happen. And it's quite the story. There's a season for everything. As an avid animal lover and growing up on a farm in the South, the fall always troubled me. During the spring, we would have calves, chicks, ducklings, piglets, puppies, and kittens on the farm. Spring was my favorite time of year. I would always be the one that would gravitate to the runts of the litter and try to save them so they weren't left to die by the mother or culled by my father. It was a reality that runts seldom lived, but I always wanted to try. Coming from a farming community, the reality was that throughout the year, animals would have to be slaughtered for the family to sell and to eat. That realization didn't make things any easier for me. We always had spring pigs to sell to other farmers who didn't raise hogs. I would always try to hide the runt of the litter because I wanted to hand raise the runts myself. I knew deep in my heart that eventually the piglet would grow into a full-sized hog and would either be slaughtered or have to be sold. But that didn't keep me from trying my best to hide the little thing.
In the spring of 1969, I was still young and fairly naive about around the farm. I am now 53 years old, and my memory of the spring is still clear in my head. Our sow had given birth to 14 piglets that spring. There happened to be two runts in that litter. My dad explained to me they needed to be culled because they probably wouldn't live anyway. Being a stubborn little man, I begged him to let me try and bottle feed him. One was a male, one was a female, and I was only eight or nine at the time. I got permission from my school teacher to bring the piglets to class each day so I could bottle feed them. She thought it was a great idea to have the other students help bottle feed them and learn about them as piglets grew. By the end of the school year, both of the piglets had survived with feedings every two to three hours around the clock while they were little. They were big enough to sell. I did not realize that my dad had decided to keep the male, or why. We kept the male and sold the female for $25. At that time, $25 was a lot of money for us to have. Plus, I knew she would be used for breeding. I had no idea what was in store for Bart. I kept feeding Bart, and he continued to get fatter. October rolled around, and my father and grandfather, grandmother and mom sat me down, and we had a long heart-to-heart -heart talk. They explained that the first frost would soon be coming, and that they were going to have to slaughter Bart. We couldn't afford to keep him over the winter. Feed was expensive even then. It had to be done. I was heartbroken. I ran for the room yelling and screaming absurdities that I knew better to even entertain in my head, much less have them come out of my mouth. I cried for two weeks. School was back in session when the first frost hit that year. I knew that weekend, and I knew that weekend would be Bart's last day. I asked a neighbor friend of mine if I could spend the weekend with them because I didn't want to be at the house when it happened. When I got home Sunday, I didn't go to church that Sunday morning because I was even mad at God, or at least I thought I was then. The dinner table was set and everyone was silent. You could hear the crickets underneath the porch outside chirping away. Nothing but silence. Mom had made my favorite for dinner, fried chicken and potato salad. I just sat there with tears welling up in my eyes I didn't say a word. I knew I would be in for a thrashing if I let out another round of smart mouth. I remember that to my mom and dad. I didn't eat much that night. When it was time for me and my brother to go to bed, daddy said, I will be up in a few minutes to talk to you. My brother slept on the couch that night. I knew I was going to get it for not eating my dinner and for not going to church that day. I waited in bed. I put on two pairs of pajamas and extra socks in preparation for my punishment. Daddy didn't even knock on the door. He walked right on in. He sat down at the edge of the bed. Neither of us said anything for about five minutes. Finally, he broke the silence. You know, son, we raise animals to sell and to have food for the winter. We have to make ends meet. You know that, right? I told my dad, yeah, I understand, but I don't have to like it or watch it when it happens. No, you don't, he responded sternly. 
He said to me in a low voice, there is a season for everything, son. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to reap and a time to sow. He then said something that I have told my son many times. There's even a, even a time, son, to be angry and a time to show compassion and understanding. He got up and walked out of the room. I didn't understand his words at that time, but I felt at peace with everything right then. The next morning, I came down to breakfast and there was a bacon, potato, cheese casserole on the table for breakfast. I knew in my heart that it was part that was on the table. I couldn't eat. I excused myself from the table and I was going to go to school. Mom looked at me and said, Dennis, your dad wants your help out at the hog shed. I stared and I said, all right. I walked slowly to the hog shed and my dad was waiting with hog slop and water. He looked at me and he said he had hurt his back slaughtering the hogs on Saturday when he slipped and fell. My dad never slipped and fell, but I didn't say anything. I grabbed the feed and water and walked up to the and walked up the hill to the hog pen. There was Bart. He wasn't dead. I didn't know then that Dad had used part of the money we had gotten for the sow and some of the money he and Mom had saved up for Christmas presents and bought a hog from another farmer to slaughter. My dad had spared Bart. Dad had walked up the hill behind me and was standing there smiling at me. You realize this is your... Christmas present, and any piglets that he sires will be sold for the, the spring to pay for the hog we bought to kill. I knew he was right, but my dad had shown compassion and understanding for me. For me! I ran to him and gave him a huge hug and thanked him. Even though I knew in my heart this would never happen again, I understood that sometimes we have to show understanding and compassion for others. He said, come on, Let's get back to the house. Your mom has made us breakfast and we have to show her we like it and appreciate her getting up at 3 a.m. to fix it for us. That was the last time my dad held my hand. But I remember it as well today as if it happened yesterday. And that was the best bacon potato cheese casserole I had ever eaten. I can't make it as well as my mom, but I give it a try. It's simple and cheesy and loaded with the bacon and potatoes. He says, be prepared to spend two and a half hours for it to bake, but it's well worth the wait. It's great hot or cold. So in my illustrious former life as a volunteer with 4-H and the University of Illinois Extension, I was responsible for the soda pop sale at the, at the Lake County Fair. And I'm rather proud of myself, between myself and another friend of mine, and our little efforts, um, the first year we took over, we had sales of $9,000. The year before, they had 4000 And by the time I finished dealing with it, I had 20000 sales in pop. We, um, just between the two of us, we kept the cost of drinks at the Lake County Fair down. That's an achievement. But the hardest time I had for volunteers was Saturday afternoon when they had the auction, because all the kids, that, the 4-H kids, they wanted to be there for the auction. A lot of them had kind of spent some time campaigning with people who like to spend money to perhaps come and buy my prize pig or prize goat or what have you. 
And the second hardest time, or the, maybe the worst time, was Sunday afternoon, because that's when the pigs were being, and their farm animals were being led away to the new owners. Some of them might become pets, but some of them might show up at St. Mary's Pig Roast the following week. So I kind of had an understanding of what was going on here to some extent. Um, but it was very nicely, I think, stated here. Now, the next item, this is actually a soup that you're going to get to try today. It's a salt sea barsky. It's a Lithuanian soup. Um, this one, they said it was a common dish brought to America in the early 1900s by my great-grandparents. They left their village to brave the new world because of famine. According to my grandmother, this was made often for lunch, as it would keep till the men could get in from the field. She usually got the job of chopping the beets, the cucumbers, and the dill. Sometimes they would make it with buttermilk, other times with sour cream. It just depended on what was on hand. I never got to meet my great-grandparents. Joseph died in the 1940s from tetanus, contracted on the farm. Catherine died shortly thereafter from a broken heart, and this was actually entered on her death certificate. My grandmother had a huge garden with dill surrounding it, and that's my main memory of her, the smell of dill in the summer heat and in the soup. Uh, she taught her two boys and my father and uncle to make the soup, and my father taught it to me. It is the perfect summer soup, cold, refreshing filling. Now I'm teaching my granddaughters to make this soup and to help me pick the dill in my garden. So they said this spans about five generations. This soup was presented two years in a row. Then we learned to rewrite some of the rules for the uh, contest. But, and I knew why she did it the second year, because I always take what's the prettiest dish of the year. And so when I, I feature it on the website, when I give the contest rules for the following year. And the thing was, it was a, it's, it's a good soup, but I think um, Sylvia Wu made it today. Um, the one that was presented just needed more seasoning than it did. It had a taste of water. And I know there was a lot of good ingredients. There was sour cream, there was vinegar, there was salt. It just needed some adjusting. So when I made it for myself, for my family recently, um, I made it like a concentrate. I, instead of three quarts of water, I cooked everything in one quart of water and decided we could add water at the table. Since it's a cold soup, that's easily accomplished. Um, but it's really pretty and it's nice. And Now sometimes we find ourselves, I'm not gonna read you the story from this person. She's great. Um, these are asparagus soups. There's a green asparagus soup on the left. There's a white asparagus soup, spargle soup or Zupa on the right. And sometimes we're asked to solve family dilemmas. And in this case, this was how her, I think, grandparents met. Uh, the mother was, grandma was working on the farm, taking care of the kids, and one of her responsibilities was the asparagus um, patch. And her future husband was there dealing with some of the uh, animals and such. Anyway, animals got into the asparagus patch and ate it. And that's how love blossomed 
but two sides of the family have expectations of what you serve at Thanksgiving dinner. And one side of the family expects the soup on the left, the green asparagus soup, and the other side of the family thinks that they're smarter and more clever, and they present the white asparagus soup. Sometimes it's served both together with people to choose. Other times it's one year it's the green soup, one year it's the white soup. And they came up afterwards and they said, and she did get, uh, I don't know if I think she got first prize. She did. I just forgot to mark it. This I put in like about 7 o'clock this morning. I added this slide. And then they go, so please solve the family dilemma. Which is the better soup? I know that's a loaded question, one that will never be answered to them. Just not worth the grief. Now, this is um, Joni Schumacher is featured. She's, she and Amy and another person who will be later on, Linda Sefuentes, have practically been in every competition over the years. And Beulah, her mother-in-law, is frequently the person who um, was responsible for the recipe. And in this case, Beulah made chicken salad sandwiches that were to die for. And here's an excerpt from her story. She goes, my mother-in-law Beulah was an excellent cook and she was well known for her delicious food. One particular favorite of immediate and extended family was her chicken salad sandwiches. Everyone expected her to bring these savory sandwiches to reunions and church potlucks. They were especially delicious as a cool entree for a hot picnic day. She was always careful to keep the sandwiches well chilled. Everyone knew her sandwiches without looking for her name on her container, usually Tupperware. And I recall her dish being one of the first to be empty. We, all, we were almost always reserved the chicken salad for our evening meal after large holiday noon meals. This made a perfect menu as she was able to make the salad ahead and wasn't busy in the kitchen during afternoon family time. Beulah was also very particular about her presentation and always sliced off the crust of the sandwich-style bread. She made crumbs out of the crust pieces so there was no waste. We worry about these things, you know? One side of the bread was covered lightly with mayonnaise and the other with soft butter, which added a flavor and was her unique style. She always cut the sandwiches diagonally and placed the sandwich bags with a fold on top to assure they would be fresh. These sandwiches were prepared in advance of the event and chilled in the refrigerator to mellow. We go to these state fairs. It's now the the at least at the Illinois State Fair, that building's air conditioned. It's one of those places where I'm not sure if people come and sit down and listen to what's happening in that building because they're really interested or they're just there to enjoy getting cooled off. But these sandwiches were cold to the touch. And when, the, when we were finished judging, we took apart this presentation to figure out what was going on. And if you, you can't tell the scale right here, but the size of that basket is roughly the size of an ice cube tray. They had taken the partition out, they had um, chilled a, or froze a block of ice, and then wrapped lots of plastic around it so it wouldn't make you know, any damage, and then you know, put the doily and the sandwiches on top. And we were like, oh boy, not only is this a really good sandwich, it's a really great method of keeping a sandwich cool. And it's just, just brilliant. Um, 
Now, Jody Schumacher, back in 2016, she, she started asking me about oven fried chicken. And her description of oven fried chicken was something I personally had not encountered. It was something she knew of. It was something her grandmother had done, but she hadn't, by talking around to people, had not been able to identify the, the method or the recipe and was doing research. By the way, take a look at these presentations. You got the, the heirloom family china, you got fresh flowers, and you got a frame with chicken wire with little clips holding up pictures of the family. This is quite typical of what we get to see. And it was another reason why stylized photos from a, uh, from a studio were not going to quite capture what we get to look at. So she did additional research. So the next year, she had the thing licked. And she did what some other people have done. Uh, not going to be present today, but it's in the book, is somebody whose family had lost the family recipe for uh, beef and noodles. And they had a specific style and taste that they really liked. And she actually had documented it. She had distributed it to the family. She misplaced her copy. They misplaced their copies. And she had to go, like, all over again to figure out how to, to make it. But in this case, with Joni, she goes, chicken as an old time favorite main dish serves up for many folks a vast variety of memories. I've heard several senior members of our family call one chicken dish in particular oven fried chicken. And my mother explains this was a family favorite Sunday dinner dish. Her mother would fry it fresh chicken pieces just until lightly browned and then place the chicken in a roasting pan, add some liquid, cover, and bake in a slow oven. Her family would then travel to church and back in their horse-drawn carriage while the chicken baked. She further explained that her mother would fire up the oven with split wood in the summer and would use nut coal in the winter as the coal would get hotter than the wood. They also had a small old cold oil stove in the washroom and her mother sometimes cooked in this in the summer. So mother recalls the excitement of her mother when one day a large truck arrived and delivered a, a bottle gas stove that my grandfather had ordered as his prize for my grandmother. This stove was much easier to use as they had just had to light a match to ignite the stove and oven. It amazes me how grandmother knew how much fuel to use to keep the oven glowing at the right temperature for the chicken to slowly roast all morning. <clears throat> I noticed quite a glow also on my mother's face as her memories took her back to savor that fall-off-the-bone tender chicken as her mother, daddy, and sister gathered around the kitchen table at noon. Mother said grandmother usually made chicken gravy also, and if they didn't have potatoes for the meal, they would eat the gravy on bread. Family meals seem to be some of the most special memories my mother has of her childhood, as their life was a simple, hard-working farm family far away from the hustle and bustle of our modern lives. Uh, when mother speaks of dinner, she means the noon meal, hence the dinner bell, which was rung to call the men in from the fields midday. What city folks, and I think modern folks, call dinner now was referred to by my mother's family as supper 
or the evening meal. I remember well the everyday dishes we used at my grandmother's when I was a child. And I'm so pleased to have found several pieces of these dishes at various antique shops. I especially enjoy using these when serving grandmother's oven fried chicken. My grandparents still had chickens on their farm, and when I was a little girl, and I loved taking grandmother's basket and go into the chicken house to carefully collect eggs. I also recall being careful to watch where to step when walking outside around where the chickens strolled during the day. I also recall, which with not so much fondness, memories of my mother's chicken dressing day, which we kids always wondered why it wasn't called undressing day. Early on, on a weekday morning, my mother would go to a nearby neighbor and return with a wooden crate full of noisy fryers. She would open the trap door and put one chicken, oh, pull out one chicken, hold its neck over a stump, and chop off the head with a sharp axe. We kids were so disgusted to see the headless chicken flopping around the yard, splattering its blood everywhere. The mom would dunk the chicken in a bucket of very hot water and proceed to pluck off the feathers. To this day, I can still smell the stench of wet feathers and have absolutely no desire to sleep on a feather pillow. To remove the pin feathers, mother would hold the birds over a small fire in the yard to singe off the fine feathers. My grand-grandmother used to do this over an open burner on this kitchen stove and one time caught her apron on fire. So this could be a dangerous step. One by one, all the chickens were destined for the same fate. The chickens were next taken inside to the kitchen sink where the innards were taken out, the gizzard cleaned and kept along with the liver and heart. We kids thought dressing old hens were more interesting than the fryers because we were intrigued to watch mom find eggs inside, inside these chickens. Next, the chickens were cut up, wrapped in plastic bags and frozen. I don't really recall if we had fresh fried chicken for our evening meal that night, but I don't think after all that commotion, chicken would have sounded too appealing, and I think my mother would have been too tired to fry chicken. I must say it amuses me to hear young moms today complain about what a job it is to go to the grocery, to buy chicken nuggets to microwave, breaded chicken tenders ready to bake, or even pick up a rotisserie chicken for dinner. Oh, what they don't know. Even though one could say, I know how to dress chickens, I have to be honest to say, this is not one family tradition of skills I have carried on. However, I do want to carry on the tradition of Sunday oven fried chicken with my family. And after a couple of recent trips to Kentucky Fried Chicken to pick up chicken after dinner, or for Mother's Day, and again for Father's Day family meals, I have concluded this old-fashioned oven chicken is much more economical. I have searched extensively for a recipe or directions for this dish. I have searched through many old family handwritten recipe file boxes and many old books, including Domestic Arts Edition of the American Woman, copyright 1939, as well as questioned many seniors who admit they ate this chicken at their mother's or grandmother's home, but I have come to the conclusion that this dish was something home cooks found so simple and commonplace that there was never the need to record as a recipe. It seems some of the best family foods were not kept secret, but just prepared and the skill passed down through the generations along with savory memories. 
I have spent some delightful hours with my mother listening to her detail how, she, how her mother prepared this chicken, and we now have the recipe documented. It is so wonderful to have a fried chicken recipe that enables one to brown the chicken and have the mess cleaned up before mealtime. I'm also so thankful I can set my oven to the exact temperature and not have to fire it up. I recently prepared this dish for my mother, and she declared it delicious and very similar to what she remembers her mother prepared. And she seemed to sincerely enjoy this connection to her past. After the chicken dinner, we looked at her picture album and found some childhood chicken pictures to treasure, probably those in the back. Um, we also enjoyed looking back through the years with my picture album, and I must say I'm not surprised or disappointed we didn't find any pictures of chicken dressing day. So instead, I could just picture cherished memories of how my mother sometimes performed the unpleasant tasks to provide the best quality food possible for her family. I'm now excited to be able to prepare this chicken for my children and 11 grandchildren, as they now call this tender bone chicken, to differentiate from their frequent meals of chicken tenders. I'm also especially looking forward to preparing this dish again for my mother on her 90th birthday this coming October. And lots of people have gone through these experiences of a lost dish, but not everybody has found it. Okay, so this is, <laughs> this is the, the polenta, which is on the Bicentennial website, Half Eaten. Um, now it's in intact in its original virginal form. Okay, so I'm just going to give an excerpt of this particular, but he said, um, Grandma passed away in 1945, and although my mom was only 13, she now took over the job of preparing meals because all of her other sisters were so much older, married, and did not live there anymore. My mom remembered making and eating many meals with polenta. Once the cornmeal and water were mixed and cooked, forming a creamy dish of polenta, which Barbara Cook is preparing today, the polenta was spooned onto a wooden cutting board. The polenta was covered with a tomato sauce and sprinkled with Parmesan, and the family would gather around the table, each with their fork or spoon, and dig in. Yes, they would all eat from the cutting board's mass of polenta, each starting in their corner or section and digging away at the delicious creamy mixture often served along with Italian sausage. Interestingly, many times before they began eating, they would decide on a pattern to follow. Sometimes, perhaps to dig with their forks and produce a map of Italy or Illinois or some cartoon character. It sounds like fun, except when you think everyone is digging in there with their own forks eating a communal dish. I don't know how sanitary that was, but that's what they did time and time again. My mom told me how she would, she would upset their design by taking her fork and making a trail through the polenta to where the others were stationed. One reason polenta was considered a family meal is it was usually eaten on special occasions like Thanksgiving, Christmas, or Easter. I don't know how many ever sat down at one time to consume a board of polenta, but from the stories I have heard, I would have to say at least six to 10 people. I am sure it did not bother anyone as our family was, has always been very close. 
My mom and my dad's parents, brothers and sisters, and their families lived within three to four blocks of our house. I literally was neighbors to most of my aunts and uncles, maternal and paternal grandparents who also still live there, and my cousins. Since one of my aunts owned a tavern, that served as a hub for family get-togethers during holidays and important family events. We ate a lot of polenta in that tavern. Their stories were mostly about eating polenta during the Depression and then World War II. It was a special tradition brought over from Italy. By the time I arrived on the scene in the early 1950s, they had, for the most part, gone to eating polenta on individual dishes. Also, for some reason, and maybe it was even my dad's idea, we started putting a slice of cheese in the layer of polenta. The cheese would melt and just add flavor and an appeal to eating the polenta. We just love that idea of eating communally off the same cutting board. That just captures the event. I still haven't made it at home, but that's exactly how I'm going to serve it and watch everybody look rather surprised. Uh, and this is a handwritten recipe from his mother. In this case, <laughs> she has started to use the microwave. And, and of course, just to make things even more interesting, this recipe that's handwritten and the recipe that's on the website that was his writing has two different proportions, so you're not quite sure which one is the other. Now, this is a chocolate sour cream pound cake. This is one where the person didn't win, was understandably unhappy, and one of the reasons was that um, there was... No, there was flour, but not how much you had to put into it. And we were one of those days where we were in the position of having to pick and choose with looking for fine points. And having an incomplete recipe, in this case, was one of those fine points. However, I always think when I see something like one of these chocolate sour cream pound cakes or its ilk, is something, uh, we have a perpetual judge at the Indiana State Fair, Jolene Katzenberg. Um, she used to write for the Indiana Star, and now she's does a lot of independent food writing. And she commented, one time we had a whole lot of things. And there was a really good cake, but unfortunately it just didn't quite, it wasn't in the upper, upper categories. And she goes, you know, this cake is probably well regarded in her community. It's probably the cake that's first finished from the dessert table at a church supper. And it probably is. And it's sad, but we do have some. Um, Deb Silberstein made that today. Um, so it will live on, it will live on. Amy Wertheim is somebody I've known when I used to compete at the State Fair. I've known her that long, and she says she's been doing it for about 25 years. So I have a feeling I've known her for 25 years or longer. Not quite sure. They have a candy business in Atlanta, Illinois. And when the first time I met her, she, and I've, I know I've probably said this story several times, but I just love it. She goes, we're, we're the number one candy maker in Atlanta. And I'm sitting there, my mind's twirling, and I'm like, how do they pull that off? Be central Illinois and be the number one candy maker in Atlanta, Georgia. That's how I'm thinking. Never thought that I'm passing the Atlanta exit um, while marching down to Springfield, just had not paid attention. But her family does indeed have a candy 
uh, company. They have, I think, about 2,000 acre farm. They do a lot of, you know, the soybeans and corn. They do hops. Um, for those who came to the uh, corn symposium, she was, I think, one of our last speakers, if not the last speaker. She went in a direction I hadn't quite expected, but it was fine. But I also know how it happened, too. Um, I w it was a discussion on Facebook, and somebody said, Oh, you farmers, all you do is you put a seed in the ground, and you wait for it to grow. Oh, my God. That just set her off. And so the talk she did at that particular event was a year in the life of a farmer, from winter to harvest. And I did not know that harvest finished just before Thanksgiving. Somehow I thought everything was finished, I don't know, middle of October. I just did not know enough. But she kept us very well informed that day. Well, anyway, the candy company initially at one point was in a section of, they have a rather large house, and it was in a section of that house, and there was a fire, and it burned. Not the whole house, but it did enough damage to the candy operation. The handwritten recipes for grandma that had not yet been described were, were burned. And so there was a lot of loss related to that particular fire. And one of them was the peanut brittle recipe. Well, Amy goes to, um, what do you call it, uh, auctions, you know, estate auctions. And there was a box, several boxes of books, and she put in her bid, and then learned afterwards that they were talking the price per book in the box, not for all the boxes. So she just grabbed that book, and later on when they went through this again and cycled back, she did end up buying all of the books, but at a price that was reasonable from her point of view. Anyway, she started thumbing through this book and recognized the handwriting of her grandmother. That book had her grandmother's peanut brittle recipe, one of those things that was lost. It's just, what, a kismet? Or it's just, it's spine tingling. It's just spine tingling. You know, just to, to think you have something lost, whoops, and then find it again under these circumstances. And this was one of those books, you know, you give to the young bride, maybe in a bridal shower, and everybody writes in their favorite recipe. That's what was done there. Now this, I think, this is, this is something my Mushroom Club friends, hi there, uh, will enjoy. Hobie is the Czech word for mushroom. And this is Linda Sefuentes, who grew up in, um, in the Cicero Berwyn area, but she now lives in Muhammad. Uh, this was her story. And this is, by the way, a very common story. When I first joined Mushroom Club 30-some years ago, this was quite frequently what we encountered as to why people came to the club. As far back as I can remember, three years old, these mushrooms were always on my bubby's, grandmother in Czech, holiday tables. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, I often wondered why we didn't have them every time we got together at our house. Now, after making this coveted recipe one fall weekend in October with my Uncle Joe and my sister Cindy, I now know why. Labor-intensive and low yield. But before I get to that, let me get back to the beginning and give you a little history. My Bobby, Agnes Holas, came to this country with her sister Marie and their husbands Anton 
uh, my Dida is grandfather in Czech, and Cyril Holus. Yes, you got it. Two sisters buried two brothers. In 1898, Agnes was born near Belgrade, which actually became part of Yugoslavia, and she and my Dida spoke Czech. Back then, the area was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. My Bobby and Dida were married when they came to this country in 1920, after the end of World War I. They entered through Ellis Island, and along with Marie and Cyril and many other Czechs, they settled in Berwyn. This was a large Czech community where most of the business keep, shopkeepers spoke Czech. The couple settled in and started their family, which soon grew to seven. Bessie, Agnes, Anton, her father, Frank, John, Joseph, and Robert. My Dita did masonry work, and my Bobby had the tough task of handling the holus brood, which she did with both love and an iron hand. But with five boys, I'm told her task was not easy. Bobby pretty much made everything from scratch, mostly out of necessity because there were so many mouths to feed and therefore it was cheaper. She was an excellent cook and as most cooks in that era did not have a recipe, just picked up ingredients by the handful and threw them in. She canned anything she could not, she, I mean anything she could, but all of the things she canned, the mushrooms was the most special in the family because it was truly a family affair. Before you could can them, you had to hunt them. So every last child was banned with a bag, and oftentimes a stick, and sent out to the local woods or forest preserves to fill their bags. It was a bit of hard work, but since they were all together, it became a fun family outing that would last hours, depending on how many mushrooms the boss, Bobby, wanted. Before the tedious job of cleaning the mushrooms commenced, which everyone participated, each mushroom was inspected by Bobby to make sure it was okay and not poisonous. Her children would all ask how she knew they were okay, and I was told she always answered, because I know. Those are dangerous three words. Because it doesn't transmit the information, and this is why people end up at Mushroom Club. When I was a little girl, my parents tried a couple of times to take my brothers, sister, and I to the local forest preserve on a mushroom hunting expedition but we didn't even find enough to make a half pint. So my dad gave up and left the task to the experts. It was a fun, it was fun though I, while it lasted because we were all together hiking in the woods. My uncles John, Joe, and Bob remained bachelors and eventually moved to a wooded house on a lake in northwestern Wisconsin. You know what woods means, mushrooms. Even in her later years, she lived to be 90, Bobby was still running the mushroom show. My uncles would drive down to Berwyn and pick her up and bring her to the north. They would pick the mushrooms and she still inspected every once last one. Just like when they were little, they all cleaned the mushrooms and put them up together. The word Hobie is Czech for mushroom and since the mushroom was the object of the hunting tradition and a significant part of the Czech diet, the Hobie parade was born in Berwyn and Cicero in 1968 until present. It, has, it was established to honor the families who settled in this area and continued the time-honored tradition. Now, sadly, my Uncle Joe is the last survivor of the Holus children, but he's continued with the tradition of hunting mushrooms and canning them by himself in true bubby fashion. Last year, I guess he thought it was time he better pass the tradition on, 
So he called my sister Cindy and me in mid-October. Now you have to understand that when he called, you said you need to come within the next two weeks or the mushrooms will be gone. So Cindy and I juggled our work schedules and away we went. We drove 400 miles north to Wisconsin and no sooner pulled into the driveway and Uncle Joe opened the doors, shoved bags in our hands and directed us to the next door neighbor's lawn, which was covered with mushrooms. We stared at him and he said, start picking. So we broke the mushrooms off at the base from the ground and we started filling our bags. Of course, me and Cindy asked the million dollar question, Uncle Joe, how do you know they are not poisonous? And of course, we got the million dollar answer, because I know. After two hours and many full bags of mushrooms, Uncle Joe deemed the hunting session over. I must say, me and Cindy did have fun under the watchful eye of Uncle Joe. Now the real work begins. We all sat down at the newspaper covered table and we began to clean each and every mushroom by throwing the debris on the floor. I can't even imagine what a mess this was when my dad and uncle were little and there were only seven and there were seven of them plus Bobby. This task took us several hours and Uncle Joe inspected each, each mushroom so quality control was maintained. The clean mushrooms were thrown into a large cast iron pot that was then filled with water and placed in the refrigerator overnight. The next day, the mushrooms were rinsed and then placed back in the refrigerator. We did not start cooking them until Sunday afternoon. After all that, we got five pints and two half pints. It took us all weekend, but it was one of the best weekends I've spent with my Uncle Joe. I think the mushrooms are an acquired taste. I like them. I don't love them. This past Thanksgiving at my nephew's house, my sister and I proudly put out a pint of our mushrooms and announced to everyone they should try them. My brothers, who both loved the mushrooms and used to fight over them when we were little, wouldn't touch them until we finally told them that they were Uncle Joe supervised and approved. Uncle Joe is badly cancer so far, has survived two and a half years. We already have a date set for mid-October for another round of mushroom hunting and canning. This time we are bringing a four-year-old great-niece, Carolyn, to get another generation indoctrinated in the tradition. It's in this trip I have to learn the answer to that all-important question, how do you know they're okay? I really need to know. These mushrooms would go great popped into a picnic basket because the whole idea of them like picnics is family oriented. And by the way, she forgot to tell you, but the mushrooms are always served in the jar with a fork in them. And Stephanie and I have gone to enough mushroom things. This is a familiar sight. This is also, at least for me, a familiar story, probably for you too. And, and I have been to the Hobie Fest. By the way, people really do like to be winners. We have a nice picture here. I think this is 2015, but I'm really not sure anymore. And somebody who's not here asked for butter cows. So this is typical of the butter cow picture you could take at the state fair. You've got the reflection of all the people. It's really not a great picture, so you kind of like have to hang out 
for the people who came in advance, like the journalists, to get a picture with a clear view. And this is, I think, from 2009, a young Abraham Lincoln reading while hanging out with a cow. And I have to say, uh, there's a food writer in Springfield, Illinois, who was quite critical of the boring presentations of the butter cows at the Illinois State Fair. Because at the Ohio Iowa State Fair, they have far more interesting things, you know, like man lead, you know, landing on the moon and all sorts of themes like that. But I have to say, this is from Iowa, and that's a chocolate mousse. A mousse made of chocolate, and they had to keep that particular pavilion cold enough, and it was a pretty hot, humid summer, to keep that thing from melting. It didn't show up the following year, and I haven't been to Iowa for a couple of years, but that is indeed a chocolate mousse. And we have been working on this book. This is likely to be the cover. Um, when I was doing a program recently for the Highland Park Historical Society, I put together a, a slideshow to show people as they were entering the program to keep them from being too bored of, of maps. I had a lot of antique maps for the city of Highland Park, and I found I also had some maps for the um, state of Illinois. And I contacted George Ritzlin, who's a, in the map business, antique map business in Evanston, also lives in Highland Park, and he was very kind to let me have that image. But I'd like to kind of tell you a few more things, because you know, you're my family of friends, our, cook, our culinary history family, right? I'd just like to tell you a few things. I tried to do the styling for this book myself. I thought if the people from the Lake County uh, Historical Societies could do it, so could Kathy. And, and, it's, and I'm glad I went through the exercise of doing it so that I could appreciate better. Um, this was sort of the editing. And you see where that golden page is? That's, so where it's pink is where you cannot print into. So you have to make sure you're not to touch. And the little boxes up there, you know, looks like columns. And I had to create my own, well, I created my own layout. And, and see it at the bottom, I also had like a cookbook with the name and the chapter name. And I have to tell you, not that you could appreciate it totally, but I didn't realize I could enlarge that image. I spent a lot of time looking at a really tidy image going, this is madness, this is madness. And then very belatedly in the process learned I could make it bigger. And that's what I did. So I needed somebody to help with the artwork for the cover and for transitional chapters. And I gave the guy information on what I'm up to. And meanwhile, um, Mike Gebert, he was here last December, the Fooditor book. Um, he gave me some ideas of how I could tweak it and make it a little bit better. That was, or is that me? That's still me. <laughs> That's Mike's idea. He kind of gave me some ideas on how I could, you know, put a little more style. But you know, you've met me. You've known me for years. I'm a WYSIWYG. What you see, what you get. I'm not into style too much. So I contacted, so I contacted this guy related to um, doing the cover. 
And, and that was, yeah, Mike's idea of what it could look like. That, I'm sorry, I'm messing up my pages, but that's what I, it could look like. Um, and I contacted this guy, and he goes, you know, I could do the cover. I could do those transitional pages you want. But he says, your, back, your book could look a little more stylish. And then he said the magic words. And I could probably whittle off about 80 pages. That's magic. And I could do it with 12-point font. I was doing 11-point font. I'm at the point in life where I like to be able to read easily. And that was the first rendition earlier this week. And this is the rendition he showed me last night um, around 5 o'clock. We've put in some kind of a medallion. You know, it's just kind of interesting, you know, the... Like I said, if it was me, it would be very straight and direct. But I have to say, style is meaningful. And because of my experience with other cookbooks, you know, we've all done it. Yes, I know, it's copyrighted material. But we all photocopy a page here or there from a book. And it has happened where later on I go and look at that page. I can't remember the book it came from. So I put at the bottom the title of the book. I put the, um, the chapter, you know, the year. I, put, I, I wanted to make it as much complete information as possible rather than just, I wanted, like I'm the user. You know, I didn't go to cookbook club for nothing. <laughs> and by the way, those are really funny cookbook club situations because you get somebody who substantially changes the recipe and then blames the author. You know, you, you cannot go and change things. So... That's my little program for today. If you have any questions. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Well, okay, this was one of the few where I put a rather extensive editor's comment on mushroom guides, on mushroom clubs. And fortunately, from my point of view, they didn't say what mushrooms they were using. I have a pretty good idea from looking at them. I think they're honey mushrooms. Yeah, she agrees with me. But what's the, is it armillaria? Well, there's always somebody in the room ready to. It's a honey mushroom. It's a common name. It's, it's not good to use the common name, but that's, it's a mushroom. And it has a lot of, it's rather one that has a lot of ooziness to it. Some people like it, some people don't. Some people think it upsets their stomach. But this one I put it like where to like to find Illinois Mycological Association. I gave them two books for friends that happened to write them. One is on mushrooms in Illinois. It was written by um, Joe McFarland and our friend at the Botanic Gardens, Greg Mueller. And then the one Mushrooms of the Midwest, Michael Quo and um, the guy who recently moved. Well, it doesn't matter. I basically solved that question by directing people to solid information. Because really, and in fact, uh, Joe McFarlane is with the Department of Natural Resources, and he made a great comment. He says, you know, Kathy, everybody focuses on finding the edibles. He said what they really need to focus on is what is not edible, what's poisonous, what's going to create a problem. And then go and focus on the edibles. I also, by the way, put in canning, canning warnings in there, too. You have to. Every mushroom is edible? 
Some of them only once. <laughs> yes, often said at Mushroom Club. Often said at Mushroom Club. Yes. So is, depend is that dependent on which, on which mushroom? I mean, it has to be on any mushroom. You can't make it with some other kind of mushroom. You can make it with, okay, Stephanie and I usually take care of the uh, mushroom dinner once a year. And we actually, what we do to avoid a lot of hassle and trouble, we go to H Mart and buy Asian mushrooms and we pickle them. So yeah, it doesn't. It's it's the it's what you are pickling that's the issue. And we play it safe because you know we don't want to have people charging at us. And in addition, you can be allergic to a mushroom. It doesn't mean it's poisonous. And in fact, the faster you get sick from a mushroom, the less likely it's very poisonous. But you're going to wish you were dead. Sometimes the way you feel. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. How many varieties are there of mushrooms? <laughs> Infinite. Seriously, wouldn't you say it was like over a billion? Over a million? Uh, over a million, seventy-five thousand species of macro fungi have natural like identification, you know, associated with them. And if you're interested particularly in edible mushrooms, you can probably learn about but here, here's the other, the other part DNA has really changed the dynamics Michael Quo that I mentioned just a little bit ago um, has been doing DNA and studying morels now and he put out a paper a few years ago let's put it this way when he first came to the club and asking us to provide samples and such, he, um, he knew about three morels. There were three morels. By the time he finished and finally wrote his paper, he was at 18. And some of them you cannot distinguish until you get to the DNA level. So that's mushrooms for you. Yeah. How many actual mushroom plants are there in the country? I think in many cases, whole field of mushrooms are already one plant. Oh, okay. You're, you're talking like the humongous mungus, the humongous fungus type phenomena. Well, those were you've seen them in your lawn. These fairy ring mushrooms. Well, that's a fairy ring mushroom that is hundreds or thousands of years old, and they took DNA samples at different locations and identified it was the same mushroom. But that's a very rare. But we have mycorrhizal, what they call mycorrhizal relationships, where the mushroom and a certain variety of tree interact and feed each other. And if one or the other is absent, the tree might not thrive and the mushroom won't be present. And that's been one of the problems with um, growing uh, lumber, pine lumber, in tropical tropics, is that they didn't have the right, they didn't have that um, mushroom relationship present. Any other, you didn't know I knew so much about mushrooms. I've been sitting there for 30 years listening to the lectures, just like I come here. Yeah. I'm not trying to pressure the guy to be finished fast because he's really doing a good job. He's also done, much to my surprise, and I didn't, you didn't see it in the example there, um, but on some other ones, he's been pulling out quotes and highlighting them. And partly because there was space available, but let me tell you, the, the artistic director called Kathy would never have thought of that. It's just not me. So I'm really happy with what he's doing. And, and Stephanie is you know, on the small group of people. Peter Angler is in the small group of people that have been looking at this project as it's been going along. 
and I, I'm waiting for their comments. Yeah. So not ready for Christmas presents this year? I think it will be, but it's going to be like the kind where you give them a piece of paper and say, it's in the mail. Well, but you know what? I, I started this in August. I probably, in a sense, wasted time trying to do the layout myself, but I don't think it was totally a loss because it made me really study books, cookbooks, and how they're put together. There were several books that I really looked at a lot. One was a Jacques Pepin cookbook. It was one of those things that accompanied a book, for, you know, a series in the 1990s at some point. And I had Abby Mandel's Midwest cookbook. A friend of mine uh, does estate sales, and she goes, oh, I think you'd like this. I think I have a copy somewhere in a box, but I don't. But that one was present. And so it helped me to figure out certain things like how to name chapters. Um, at one point, I had a, the, the chapter where it's the, which actually has this mushrooms. It has applesauce. It has sage leaves and two other items. It was kind of, you know, easily would have been called miscellaneous. But miscellaneous doesn't sound very appetizing. So at one point I started calling it more good things. Then I remembered Martha Stewart and her good things. And then I looked it up and yeah, she's got it trademarked and I ain't good at bump heads with Martha Stewart. I mean, I might, might be impressed with something she does, but I'm not bumping heads with her. So I called it more good food. Who can complain with that? But at least it doesn't look like it's the where we couldn't figure out where else to put it, which is truly the case. <laughs> truly the case. I know, Sylvia, you had a question. Um, passing from judging these fairs uh, at different states, what would you conclude makes us unique? Because we're about our taste. Say that again. How do our tastes and values differ from other states? What makes Illinois Oh, you know, that's tough. Because... But, okay, so you, what you're bumping into a lot, like around Springfield, a lot of the people, I would say we're bumping into the farm culture. When you go to Indianapolis, it's a mixture of urban and rural, but a lot is, but you go to Minneapolis, it's, we have some recipes, when, we, when that book comes together someday, there's going to be some recipes people are going to want because they're from restaurants and drive-ins. <laughs> One was from a Chinese restaurant. I think it was, wasn't it shrimp with, um, no, shrimp with lobster sauce or something? But it was a signature dish for this particular Chinese restaurant in that particular town. There was a drive-in. We had it one year. It was last year? Last year. Um, two different kinds of sloppy joes. And we had one judge with us where, oh, that's just messy stuff, and who would want to eat that? Well, that was the, that one of those came in, I think, second prize. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it has a lot to do. Like, if you go out to South Dakota, where I also go, again, it's mostly rural. So, and you're also talking another era. Some of these dishes, I can tell somebody made them for the first time that day to bring it to the fair. And somebody might have the luck of the Kathy and bring Swedish limpa bread and win grand champion, and some might not. Some of them could have used a little bit of finessing, but that's life. One, I'll, I'll take one more question. Oh, you could take one more question, and then you can get me in the hall. <laughs> Who wants to be the last question? Yes. What? Oh, sorry. 
Oh, okay. The layout I was using was something called Book Write, W-R-I-G-H-T, like Wright Brothers. And it was part of a program that was available through uh, Blurb, which is where this is going to get published. This book, there, we're going to, it's going to be under Greater Midwest Foodways Press. <laughs> I figured I could make that one up. Um, but the actual printing is going to be done on a uh, print-on-demand called Blurb, B-L-U-R-B. And they were the same ones that were used for the cookbook, the book that the um, library, I mean, sorry, the uh, history museums used. What I impressed by it was, I won't name names, but there was a book from Northwestern Press where the pictures were not very good, they were kind of grainy, and they were, this was published very recently. The pictures in this particular book that came from Blurb were excellent. I'm hoping that our pictures will be well, you know, good enough for them that they'll look just as well. But they, it was a good quality, and that's what I was looking for because, you know, that bread is not going to look so hot. But a lot of those dishes really do need that color to kind of get the detail, and relatively, relatively inexpensive. Because my goal, it's going to be soft cover, um, and there will be an ebook version. But I kind of want the price at a place where it's affordable. I mean, I've done enough selling of cookbooks here. When somebody's asking $35, $40, you know, it, if somebody's an enthusiast of that person, they will buy. But when it's 20 bucks and under, it, there's a better response. It's just economics. In addition, what I've noticed over the years... When I first sell, I started selling cookbooks, and it wasn't quite as easy as Scott said. It took five years to convince them to do that. But, um, and that's okay. I'm glad to do it. It was my contribution. Uh, I would bring 40 books, and most of those 40 books were sold. I didn't return too many. Now I bring 10 or 20 books, and I'm shipping some things back. It's just, you know where people are at this point in life. And that's the other thing, the other consideration, reason for doing this book. All these recipes, all these stories are on our website. You don't have to buy it. But what if I don't pay for the website? They're gone. You know, and maybe they're copied, you know, on the black net somewhere. But the real permanence is in a book. And just this last week, I never met this girl. I know her, you know, a friend of a friend type situation. But she is shutting down. She has an online web magazine that she's been doing for seven years. It's shutting down. And she goes, yeah, she says, this information on this website will be gone in about three months when their bill is, comes to the end. And she goes, thank God for books. And it was like, exactly my thinking. And these, the content, the, the actual original documents, are going to go to an archive. You know, I have enough sense of history. I also know... If things is distributed has less loss. So as I put into the, and Stephanie had the opportunity to read it, I said in the in the book, I said, if 200 years from now, this book is found in a, in a bookstore, then somebody said, what if there's no bookstores then? Well, that's another problem. But I would love it if they gasped with recognition over a name in the book or a recipe. That would make my day. And if, no, if you do nothing else but document, look at this and go, you know, uh, document recipes. Because I didn't do that with my grandmother. I loved her food. 
We didn't document, you know, like that woman said in one of her earlier dishes, the chicken, the fried chicken. You know, it was the dish they made every day. Nobody wrote it down because everybody just knew how to do it. Well, now we're a generation or two past that, and now everybody has to do it's a research project to figure out how it was made. So that's what we do. That's my weekends in the summer. That's why you don't see me every program. So thank you so much. We got samples to try. Cookies.